Let's open our Bibles to the book of Zechariah. I'll give you a minute to find it. The problem is if I say it's right after Haggai, that won't help, will it? In my Bible, it's page 1266. Does that help? No, that doesn't help either. Sorry. I'll just give you a minute to turn there. Zechariah 4 says, Now the angel who talked with me came and awakened me as a man who's awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So he said, I'm looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone, meaning of the temple, with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, or this house, and his hands shall also finish it. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are, meaning they, the seven, are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold bowls from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Now, there's a whole lot there to unpack, right? Um, by the way, I'm reading the New King James. Some of you read the King James, some the New King James, some the NIV, some the ESV, some the ABC, some the XYZ. Uh, translations are important. This is my preference. The reason translations are important because things can be translated incorrectly, right? right. So um, here's some translation bloopers. You ready? You ready, Lauren? So, uh, Coors Beer. Now, I'm not promoting beer, don't worry. Some of you may be old enough to remember their slogan, Turn It Loose. Does anybody remember that? I do. It, was, it came out, Turn It Loose. Uh, it got translated into Spanish and it came out, Suffer from Diarrhea. <laughs> That's a translation fail. How about, how about this? This is, this is Ford. Ford had the line, Every car has a high quality body. Well, they translated it, and in Belgium it came out, every car has a high-quality corpse. <laughs> Would you buy one? How about this one? Parker Penn. The original slogan was, it won't leak in your pocket and embarrass you. <laughs> it ended up in Mexico being translated, it won't leak in your pocket and make you pregnant. <laughs> now, that's a translation fail. Remember the, famous, remember the famous Got Milk campaign? We all know that, right? You see the, the athletes, and they got the white mustache, the milk mustache. Um, 
So that got translated and it came out in Spanish, unfortunately, are you lactating? <laughs> sure the mothers love that one. Okay, New King James, good translation. Okay, where were we? Oh, Zechariah. Yeah, so we'll go over the symbolism briefly here and get to the heart of the passage. Um, basically, uh, let me give you the background first. The background of, of this text is that the people had been restored from the Babylonian captivity. And when they went into captivity, when they'd been attacked and then went into captivity, the temple had been not totally destroyed, but, but greatly damaged. Okay, greatly damaged. And so when they came back, it was in, in this, not only the city, but the temple needed repair. So the, the talk here, the references here to Zerubbabel laying the foundation and the plain and the plumb line, these are all, this is all you know, about build, rebuilding, not building, rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed. And God is encouraging them to proceed with the work because what had happened is that after they came back, they began the work, but shortly after they started the work of rebuilding the temple, they got discouraged and they quit working on the rebuilding of the temple. They stopped working, and they got discouraged. So God sends his prophets, both Zechariah and Haggai, to exhort the people to get on with the work that God had called them to do. Okay? So he gives here Zechariah a vision. And let's look at the vision first. It involves uh, this lampstand and the olive trees. The symbolism here is pretty cool. Now, if you go back and read about the original lampstand uh, in, that was in the tabernacle, which we're not going to do for the sake of time, we see that that lampstand and the lampstand described here are somewhat different. Now, the, 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 the point of the lampstand, what's the point of a lampstand? Want to tell me? Light. Not sound. <laughs> light. So the, the point is light. Now, in one sense, the lampstand represented the light of God. But it also represented the calling of Israel to be a light of the world. Okay? God's light is shared with his people, and thus his people share in this, in, in being the light of the world. Right? So Israel was called to be God's light as his chosen people. Of course, it also speaks of the church, and Jesus said to us, You, us, we are the light of the world, right? The olive trees produced what? Oil. And it's the oil that fed the lamp, so the lamp could keep on burning. Now, the significant difference between the original lampstand and this lampstand is this. The original one had no bowl, and it had no pipes. Okay? So the lamps had to be fed by the priests, and there, thus there were no olive trees in the original so the significance between the original and this, this vision here, lies in this fact. This vision is telling Israel, this vision of the lampstand and the olive trees, which is different from the original, it was intended to express to them the fuller and the more immediate supply of divine oil, the Holy Spirit. Okay, a fuller and more immediate supply of divine oil, which is the Holy Spirit. Do you hear that? 
And through the Holy Spirit's agency, Israel would be abundantly fitted to fulfill the task of rebuilding the temple and being the light of the world. That's what God was trying to tell them, that he would give them all that they needed to fulfill their task to rebuild the temple and to, and to fulfill their calling as God's chosen people. He would give them more than enough, if you will. So um, there's also a mountain in this passage. And what, what does the mountain stand for? The mountain in the Bible often stands for authority, but it often stands for an obstacle, okay? Some kind of obstacle. Jesus said if we have faith, we can do what? We can move mountains. In other words, move obstacles. He's not saying go outside and look for a hill and tell it to move, okay? Obstacles. Now, those obstacles to God's work can take the form of established power, a government of some kind, right? So the, the mountain here represents human and even spiritual opposition to Israel's task of rebuilding the temple. So the angel then is telling Zechariah and really telling Israel through Zechariah that all of the opposition to God's work through Israel will be put down. All of the opposition will be overcome. In other words, God is taunting his enemies here in this vision. And he's giving a prophecy of the future that God's work would be successful. The temple would be rebuilt. Now, Zerubbabel is also typological in this passage. What do I mean? He represents more than Zerubbabel. He's a type of Jesus Christ in his office as king or ruler. Just as in the previous chapter, which we don't have time to read, Joshua is a type of Jesus Christ as the high priest. So both Joshua in the previous chapter and Zerubbabel in this chapter are said to build the temple. Why? Because they both represent one person in his two offices, Christ as king and Christ as the priest. And it's Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, who builds God's spiritual temple, the church. Amen? It's Jesus who builds the church. Jesus Christ said in Matthew 16 that when Peter, remember Peter professed him for the first time? Can you hold your place here and go to Matthew 16? I'd like to read it together. In Matthew 16, in verse 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? Or, excuse me, that I, the Son of Man, am. So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said, But who do you say that I am? That is the question, isn't it? Not what do other people think. What do you think? Right? Who do you say Jesus is? And Simon Peter answered, verse 16, You are the Christ, or the Anointed One, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus Christ builds his church on the rock of the profession, on this profession, 
that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior. But it's the one, Jesus is the one who is building his church. So this vision in Zechariah, where Israel's called to rebuild the temple, he's telling them uh, that the temple will be rebuilt, but it's really going to be re rebuilt through divine agency. Back in Zechariah, one more thing about the, the, the symbolism here. There's reference to the seven eyes. The number seven is, is often a, a number of perfection or completeness. Eyes symbolize knowledge. And most commentators would agree that the seven eyes here are not literal, of course. They're symbolic of God's um, absolute wisdom and omniscience. That he's aware of everything. That means God, God is telling Israel, I'm well aware of the opposition to the work. I'm well aware of your discouragement. I'm well aware of the, your need, what you need to fulfill this task. I'm well aware of this because I know all things. I see all things. So to sum up the vision before we apply it, God revealed to them three things. One, that the success of his work depends on the Holy Spirit. We need a lot of amens to that. The success of God's work depends on the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing of eternal value. Now, you can do a lot of things. You can build a company. You can build a church. You can build all kinds of things. You can do a lot of things. But in terms of eternal value and eternal significance, you can, you can do nothing. Only God can do the real work. Only the Holy Spirit can do the real work. And this is what God is telling them. He's saying, I'm giving you a fullness of the Spirit. That's what the, the, this, this lampstand, I'm giving you a, this oil and lampstand, I'm giving you a fullness here to do the work. And it doesn't depend on you, it depends on the fullness of my spirit. The second thing he's tell, telling them is that opposition to the work is futile. Because, number three, success was guaranteed by God's power and by God's presence. That is, that is the word that God was giving Israel so that they would be encouraged to rebuild the temple. So let's apply these to ourselves briefly. Number one, the success and the power of God's work depends on the Holy Spirit. Now, this is such a simple reality, it's amazing we often forget it. But when you look in Scripture, you see the Holy Spirit is, is the, the agency that God always uses to do His work in the world. Even way at the beginning, when God created, it says, what? The Spirit hovered over the water, right? Here's the Spirit involved in the work of creation. God, when he created Adam, it says that God breathed into man's nostrils. And we know that breath is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. He, he quickened Adam through his Holy Spirit into life. We know that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the Word of God, right? It says in Peter that holy men of God were moved by God's Holy Spirit to write the Word of God. We know that the Holy Spirit was the one that, that came upon Mary, and thus Jesus was conceived in Mary through the Holy Spirit. So, the, so, so we see that creation, inspiration, incarnation, and then regeneration 
are all the work of the Holy Spirit. God is always working in the world through his Holy Spirit. And the same is true today. God is still working in the world. Amen? And we know that, that in our own lives, it is the Holy Spirit that works to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. If you want to be like Jesus, then you need to learn to walk in the Spirit. Because you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? And as you walk in the Spirit, you bear all the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, etc., right? So God works holiness in his people uh, through the agency of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't save us and say, okay, straighten your life out. He doesn't save us and say, okay, you're on your own now, clean up your act. Because the reality is, we don't have power to do that. If you read the book of Romans, chapters 5, 6, and 7 are a, are, well, really 6 and 7, Paul, Paul shows how the, even though we're under grace, we, we're still not free in an experiential way from sin. We're free from sin in terms of his guilt and condemnation. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? None whatsoever. But a Christian can be in bondage to sin. So they're free, but they're in bondage? So God, if you, if you read Romans 7, how, do, how does Romans 7's end? Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the, this body of death or the body of this death? Okay? It's, 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 it's a cry of despair. It's a cry of a man who tries to be holy apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And it leads to despair. And so many people that, that walk away from the faith walk away, and it's because they get to that point. They get to where it starts getting hard. And God will let you, let you get to that place. God will let you get to the end of your rope. God will get you to a place where you realize your own inability so that he can supply his ability. That's a humbling experience, right? Maybe that's why we don't like to go down that road. Maybe that's why, why we, we would, some just say, well, you know, I tried Jesus and it didn't work. Jesus works when you let Jesus work. Jesus works when you let the Holy Spirit work. But when it's your work or my work, when it's human flesh, human flesh produces religion. The Holy Spirit produces the kingdom of God. You hear the difference? And some people like religion. They like the certitude that God exists. They like the, it's actually comforting to know that there's a real right and a real wrong. Some people love the aesthetics of the high church. They love the music and, and, and they love the... the, the uh, the stained glass, and they love... Religion is a comforting thing. But it's religion. The kingdom of God, Paul says, is in love and joy and peace and power. And only the Holy Spirit can produce that. The Holy Spirit's the one that, that, that transforms the individual Christian into the image of Jesus. He's the one also that works corporately in the church so that the church can fulfill... It's commission. When Jesus commissioned the church in Acts 1, well, let's look at it. But We're coming back to Zechariah. Go to Acts 1. I know you know it, but let's look at it for reinforcement. In Acts 1, this is a, a uh, 
Luke's addendum to the Great Commission, if you will. Luke gave a version of it in, in the last chapter of Luke. This is Luke book two. And Luke picks up where he left off. We don't know if the same conversation or conversation, I mean, this is later. We, the point is, is that this is, a, this is part of the commission. After he says to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, or be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus reiterates here that in order to fulfill the calling as witness, whether that's individually or corporately as the church, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as in the vision, God is saying, if you're going to rebuild the temple, you need a full supply of the oil, a full supply of the Holy Spirit to be the light of the world. The same that was true of Israel then is true of the church now, even more so now. Building a temple is hard work. Saving a soul is impossible. No one can save a soul. Only God. You can, you, can, you can be the best apologist in the world, the best evangelist in the world, have the best arguments. The reality is, apart from the Holy Ghost, the soul cannot be saved because he's the one that regenerates the Holy Spirit. I mean, the, the human spirit. He is the one that saves. So in order to be witnesses, we need the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. Amen? The success of God's work, whether it's in us for sanctification or whether it's through us for service, is dependent on the agency of the Holy Spirit. Salvation, sanctification, service are a product of the Holy Spirit. Human willpower is not sufficient to produce either holiness, happiness, love, or sacrifice. Paul said, in me, that is in my flesh, is no good thing. Only the Holy Spirit can sanctify the soul, renew and transform the mind, and inspire dedication and service. Only the Holy Spirit can sufficiently equip the body of Christ to fulfill her divine commission to be the light of the world and to preach the gospel to every creature. And yet God, in this vision says to his people, I will give you the Holy Spirit in fullness. I will give you enough of the Spirit that you can complete the work. Awesome. There you go. God has given the church, God has given his people everything that they need through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's saying. And that's why he says, number two, that opposition to God's work is futile. He says, to the, he says to the mountain, who are you, mountain? Who are you, opposition? Who are you, obstacle, in light of the, of the power of God through his spirit? Is there, is there a human power greater than God? No. Is there a spiritual power greater than God? If we, if we take this, the, 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 the power of man and the power of the devil and put them together, are they greater than God? There is no power greater than God. 
So if God has a work to be done, those who oppose the work are opposing God. They will be, their opposition will be futile. One person believes it. Anybody else believe it? By the way, there will always be opposition to God's work. There won't be opposition to churchianity. I don't even think there's a lot of opposition to Christianity. But there's opposition to Jesus, and there's opposition to truth, and there's opposition to the fullness of God's Spirit, and there always will be. From the very beginning, the, the, opening, the third chapter of Genesis, we only get two chapters of the Bible, and all of a sudden, the devil's there. That's all you get, two chapters. Boom, conflict. This is the human story. The conflict between good and evil. So we see Satan in the garden attacking God's plan. We see all throughout uh, Israel's history, enemies coming against them. We see the persecution of the prophets. We see the slaughter of the infants by Herod. We see the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. All th we see the persecution of the early church. All throughout Scripture and all throughout history, we see there's always been opposition to God's truth and God's spirit. Always. However, so, oh, by the way, so because of that, we shouldn't be surprised when there's opposition. I mean, you know, I want things to go smooth. But they won't go smooth if I'm, if I'm really doing God's work. Because the enemy doesn't want God's work accomplished. And the enemy is a real personal agent called the devil. He is real. His demons are real. And they will attempt to thwart, thwart God's work in your life, in your heart, but also not, the, not only the work in you, but the work through you. He doesn't, the devil doesn't want you leading your friends to Jesus Christ. That's why when you, you know you should talk to them, you, you, all of a sudden you panic. It's irrational. It's fear. It's demonic. Because the enemy wants to shut up the church, keep the church quiet. The church that has a true gospel, the gospel that saves the soul. Not, not, not the other gospel, not the American gospel. I read about a, a pastor in Nashville, south of Nashville, who came out in support of gay marriage, and it was a big, you know. And he said, I'm going to move my church to Nashville because I think people there are more open-minded. Well, that is the mentality, right? <clears throat> Let, let's, let's, let's put the church where people are open to conformity to the world. What did Paul say? All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's what he said. Holiness cuts, man. It cuts. Paul says we're a savor of life unto life or of death unto death. It depends on what people smell. Some people smell you and they smell life. And that draws them. Some people smell you and they smell death. And that repels them. Hopefully you've experienced hatred for Jesus in all sincerity, in all sincerity. Hopefully people have mistreated you for Jesus. 
Because if not, you're not speaking up for Jesus. You're not, trying, you're not an aroma of, of life and death. I've had people say to me, you know, I knew there's something about you, and they say that in a positive way. And it's been, you know, they could sense the Holy Spirit in my life. And I've had other people say, I know there's something about you, and that's why I don't like you. We should be both life and death, right? There will always be opposition. Don't be surprised if, if, if when you speak up for Christ, there's some people that don't like you. Don't be surprised if there's a group at work that decides to make you the subject of the water cooler. Don't be surprised. It's okay if they laugh and joke and smirk. It's okay. It's even okay if you get demoted. It's even okay if you lose your job. If you're faithful. If you're faithful, God will take care of you. Amen? God will honor those who honor him. And the, the, the beauty of this passage is that ultimately, regardless of opposition, God is saying to his enemies... Through Zechariah, it's all futile. You can't defeat God. <laughs> God is saying, my work is energized by my spirit. My work is accomplished ultimately by Christ. That's Zerubbabel there. And it is predicted, I mean, it is protected by my wisdom and providence. God's work is energized by his Holy Spirit. That's the oil, Right? In, 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 the, in the temple that's feeding that lampstand, right? And that lampstand, we know, is God's people. And we know in the New Testament, the lampstand's the church. Because it, it says in Revelation, Jesus is walking amidst the golden lampstands. And when John asks for an explanation, he, he, he says the lampstands are the, the seven churches. So the lesson here, God's telling his people is that everything that we need in gifts and grace in order to do God's will will be supplied to us by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, opposition is futile. The, words, the world's power at its mightiest is weak, and the church's true power at her feeblest is omnipotent. The power of God's Spirit is the only power that truly exists in the world. And his power is omnipotent, it is eternal, it is supreme, and it is sovereign. The might of all the nations compared to God, according to Isaiah, are a drop in the bucket. A drop in the bucket. Therefore, he says opposition is futile. But he also says that his work will be accomplished by Zerubbabel, or should we say, by Jesus Christ. Just as the word of the Lord said, Zerubbabel shall finish the temple he began, so Jesus will finish the work of redemption which he began. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus Christ is the true Zerubbabel, the governor or the king, right? He is the ruler, not only of the church, but also of the entire universe, the entire world. Listen, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he prefixed it with the statement about what? His sovereign authority. All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go. In other words, it's mine. Go now, reclaim it for me. Because it's mine. 
Just as, as Israel was to rebuild the temple, we are to reclaim what Jesus bought through his redemption and his work on the cross. And he is the one that through the agency of the Holy Spirit will build his temple. We should not think about Jesus as if he came and walked amongst us and did his work and then left and then left the completion to us. Right? We need to think of Jesus as a Christ who is ever active, ever present, even though invisible. That's why Jesus said at the end of the commission, the first bookend is all authority. The second bookend is what? I am with you. Always. And because he is the Lord, all opposition to his work is futile. And then God says lastly that his work is protected by his his omniscience, his wisdom, and ultimately his providence. The wisdom of God is superior to all the contrivances of his enemies. Hold your place. We'll look at one more scripture. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I love this passage. I read it often. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul is talking about the gospel. He's talking about when he came to Corinth to preach the gospel. He says in verse 18, for the message of the cross, you all there? I can wait. I can take a soda break. 118, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In other words, when someone hears the gospel and they think it's foolish, well, they're perishing, right? They're perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Where's Bill Nye, the science guy? Where's Carl Sagan? Oh, he's already in the grave. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. This is heavy. Because what he's saying here is that God in his plan has designed things in such a way that people don't know him by wisdom. Human wisdom, human speculation, human philosophy never gets people to God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. When you think about the gospel, you walk up to somebody and say, you know, 2,000 years ago, some Jew, obscure Jew, died on the cross for you. And if you believe that, hey, you're going to heaven. That's crazy. I mean, it is when you think about it. The message is crazy. The Jews request a sign. The Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. This is the key, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The wisdom of God, even in its most weak form, is greater, stronger, and all the wisdom of the world. And God loves to 
uh, flip things on, on their head, so to speak. He said to the wise people, oh, you're wise? Okay, you can't know me. You have to become like a little child. A little child. You know, I, I had dinner with, with uh, the Stevens and Loney's at, at their house, and the kids, were, we sat out in the backyard. It was a nice evening, and barbecued. Actually, I didn't barbecue, but someone barbecued. Lauren did all the work. Kids were playing. Kids running to the kids playing in the pool, kids going down slides, kids just, just being little children. And I told one of the Stevens girls that if she counted all the freckles on her nose, I'd give her a sucker for every freckle. <laughs> she probably went home that night. Wine town. Jesus said, become like that, and I'll let you in the kingdom of God. That's God turning everything on its head. Everything we humans value in terms of power and prestige and, and all of these things that we value, that give us esteem, and that we think gives us honor in the eyes of others, the Lord says, all of that, strip it all away. Come in as a little child with nothing. God in his wise providence will order all events to the completion of his work and ultimately the good of his people. Therefore, he's saying opposition is futile. Who is more powerful than the Holy Spirit? Who is more sovereign than the ascended Christ? Who is more wise than the omniscient God? No one. No warrior, no scholar, no king, no one. Before the Lord, all mountains shall be made low. So therefore, finally, what he's saying to them is that the success of God's work is guaranteed. Has it ever struck you that in the final analysis, you're on the winning team? No matter what course... No matter what course history may be taking at any particular moment in time, you're on the team that's going to win. Amen. Because ultimately God will fulfill his, his work. Opposition to his work is futile. Success for God's people is guaranteed. Who is on the Lord's side? He is the one that will be a winner at last. And then Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is, no one but God. But God is sufficient for these things. As we engage in God's work, as we talk about the Great Commission, as we talk about uh, reaching our community, we have to realize we're not talking about a church program. We're talking about the divine commission. Are you hearing me? Yeah. We're talking about something that is not optional for God's people. Jesus didn't say, for you guys in America, take a break. For you guys in America, don't ever do anything that would cause people to dislike you. For you guys in America, don't worry. Just, just live the American dream and, and have a good time. And I'll let, I'll let my, my church in, in the Middle East and South America and China, I'll let them suffer, but not you. 
No, the, the Great Commission is not something that's optional for God's people. So when, as we've been talking for months about outreach, we're not talking about something that we think is a good idea. We're talking about what Jesus has commanded his people to do, right? It's Jesus' commission, not the church's commission. And we are not sufficient, and the sooner we admit that, the better. Our wisdom is not sufficient. Our, our power is not sufficient. But God is sufficient, right? The power of the Holy Spirit is sufficient, the sovereignty of Jesus Christ is sufficient. The promise of God is sufficient. And the Lord promises success, for he says, I will build my church. So we need to, in all of our efforts, do a few things. One, rely on God's Spirit. And secondly, we need to submit to Christ's sovereignty. And lastly, we need to believe in God's promise. I believe that faith, or the lack of faith, is... is I, I believe that the church today in America is in a crisis of faith. A deep crisis. I don't just mean a crisis about particular doctrines. I mean a crisis in believing whether or not the gospel really saves. And that's why some churches will grow and some churches won't grow. But all studies have shown for the past 30, 40 years, the church overall in America is not growing. Most Christians never share the faith. Many Christians don't even read the Bible anymore. And it's a crisis of faith in the gospel. Do you believe, do you believe the gospel saves Because if you believe that and you share the gospel in that faith, you will see God save people. And if you're rejected, if some people don't like you, that's okay. Because the people that you lead to Jesus are going to love you. They're going to love you. Let's stand and pray. Lord, I thank you that we could uh, come together today only because your gospel Because you enable us to believe the gospel. That you granted us the gift of eternal life. Lord, and I do pray if anyone here doesn't know you, that Lord, that you might enable them through your Holy Spirit to understand your great love for them. The love displayed so many years ago on Calvary. That Jesus, that when you died, you were dying on the cross for sinners. You weren't dying for yourself. You were dying for others. And Lord, I pray that they would understand that if they put their faith in you as their Savior, they can receive the gift of eternal life this very day, this very moment. And Lord, I also pray for us, your people, that we would have faith in your gospel, faith in your Holy Spirit, faith in your sovereignty, faith in the success of your work because you are God.
And we thank you that you have called us to be the light of the world. What a privilege that is. We thank you for the fullness of your spirit that you grant us if we ask in faith. May each of us individually ask in faith and maybe corporately believe your promises and obey your commission. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.